we say to each other, the things we can control is to be fitter than anyone else, is to work harder than anyone else, to be more physical than anyone else. So the effort we put in was just so much more than anyone else. Um, you remember the blue bloods, we called it, when a session was done. And then we said, 20 more minutes, let's go. Let's chase each other. And I mean, there was never, no, let's not do it. The senior players were in front saying, listen, we want to be the best. We, let's go. And then 2007 before, the, or 2006, end of the year before 2007 season, when we said, listen, we're going to train on Christmas Day. We're going to do a 5K run because no one else is going to do it. We'll be one training session at least in front of everyone else. And I mean, we won the um, Super Rugby Trophy in the 83rd minute that year. So... Welcome to my podcast, Coach G, transforming athletes and purpose-driven people. The goal of my show is to inspire rugby players, athletes, and everyday people so that you can chase your goals, overcome those obstacles, turn your vision into a reality. I'll be inviting unbelievable guests in the world of sports as well as the corporate space, sharing their tools and their knowledge on performance, mindset, mental resilience, and entrepreneurship. I am your host, Coach G. Gertrude Stienkamp. I'm a former international rugby player and World Cup winner with South Africa in 2007. I've been retired since 2017 from the game of rugby, and today I'm a professional rugby and scrum coach I am passionate about helping rugby players improve their performance on the rugby field as well as front row rugby players to dominate the scrum. Another passion of mine is to help people develop mental resilience so that they can transform physically, mentally and emotionally. And every single week I'll be launching two new episodes. On Tuesday it will be a Q&A interview with an unbelievable athlete or a specialist in the corporate world. And on Fridays, it will be my solo episode where I'll be sharing my knowledge and experience in elite sports, but also life in general. Welcome to episode number nine of my podcast, Coach G. I'm super excited to speak to my guest this week. He's a former international rugby player, World Cup winner with South Africa in 2007. He has won the Super Rugby on three occasions with the Bulls and also the Curry Cup countless times. He is better known as the Lineout King. He is an unbelievable golfer and spends a lot of time in the wild. He is my former Bulls captain, Victor Matfield. Make sure you guys have your notepads ready because he will be dropping a lot of golden nuggets. Hi guys, welcome to my podcast, Coach G, transforming athletes and purpose-driven people. I've probably got the tallest player in the world of rugby joining me today. He has won the Curry Cup three times. He's won the Super Rugby on three occasions. He's won the World Cup in 2007, Tri-Nations on two occasions as well. And he has won the British and Irish Lions series. He is none other than the legend of South African rugby and also a Blue Bulls legend, Victor Matfield. Victor, my brother, good to have you. How are you doing? 
Jay, I'm very well. Nice to see you. Um, we're missing you here in South Africa. Um, it looks like you're looking good. Um, I follow you and I see you busy and you've got all your different training sessions and everything. So it's nice to speak to you. Very happy it's going well. No, thanks, Victor. I'm just glad I'm not 140 like what I was in 2006. So <laughs> I'm just happy for that. <laughs> you know, Victor, obviously been a while since I've been following you as well. You're doing great things. Um, I would eventually at some stage we'll be deep diving mostly your post-career, what you've been up to. But today we want to celebrate uh, your career as a rugby player. You know, you honestly, when I say that, I said with a lot of respect, you're one of the legends of the game. And I was really honored and privileged to have played with you. You were an unbelievable leader. The big thing is, um, Victor, a lot of uh, people always ask me, uh, at what stage did you realize that you could play at the highest level? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult question, G. Um, I actually had a long interview this afternoon as well uh, with one of my sponsors. And um, it's difficult. I think I grew up in a rugby madhouse and I just loved sports. So I loved rugby, I loved cricket, I played tennis, I did everything, but rugby and cricket were so close to my heart. And I mean, when other guys in holiday times, if they went to their friends or they went hunting, me and my dad with the cricket nets or we were on the rugby field training or whatever. And I mean, as high school went on, I, did, I didn't go to one of the big high schools like yourself um, to grow. So I went to Petersburg and I got the opportunity to go study with a bursary um, at Tux. And they actually, I think that first year, I didn't make the SN19 squad. Uh, I was in the academy side. And while all of those guys were, at the SA under 19 week, I got my break at the Blue Bulls under 21. I started playing for Tex 1. Those guys came back but because both locks were at Tex as well. And I, I was just in front of them. And from there on, things slowly went on. And um, I think it was probably in the middle of my second year where I realized, listen, here's an opportunity. I can probably do this for a, a life. And I'm doing pretty well. Uh, got picked for the SA under 21s. Um, for that tournament. And yeah, from there, things happened. Um, I had to go away from the Blue Bulls. I had to go to a smaller union, Griquas, uh, to get game time. But from there, things happened pretty quickly. Victor, I remember following you when you were still playing for the, I think it was the under-23s back then, or under-21s, and uh, you were a big unit. All right, you were solid. How much did you weigh back then? You know, I'm, I'm, before the transformation, how much did you weigh? Yeah, so... Uh, I was in matric, I was 110 kgs. And then I went up, I think the heaviest I was was about 124. In my third year, in the beginning, um, Tex went to the UK. We toured the UK and uh, we had quite a lot of drafts every night. So I turned at 124 kgs. Um, when I started playing for the Springboks, I must I think it was probably 121. So it was a big ball carrier. And then in 2003, I actually... Um, 2004, at the end of the year, I injured my um, ankle, and that's when I think in probably two weeks' time, I lost 10 kgs, and from there on, I kept the weight down, and then, yeah, I probably played at about 108 kilograms uh, my whole career. And, um, you know, Victor, was it a big adjustment, losing all that weight? Did you have to adapt or change a bit around your game? Well, I think I started off as... Still running the lineouts, but I was also a big ball carrier. Uh, loved the physical stuff a little bit, but I knew if I wanted to make it big, 
the lineout was my speciality. And I mean, and with that comes uh, mobility. So I knew I had to do something. And um, for that, I really got focused, uh, lost a lot of weight, but I got a lot stronger while losing that 10 kg. So all of a sudden I could run, uh, my mobility picked up. Uh, and yeah, I think I became a completely different player. I wasn't the big ball carrier, probably more of an offloader, standing between the centers. Um, then the big carries, that's why we had you and Donnie <laughs> Rousseau and all those guys at the Bulls to do the big carries. And yeah, I was probably a bit looser, uh, always in that front line with kick chases and those things. So adapted my game. But for me as a line-out specialist, I had to do it. And I had to uh, make the transformation. You know, that was amazing. I actually remember seeing all the billboards, the magazine covers with you and Yaku van der Vestes. And, you know, and I said to myself, you know, one day when I'm big, I'll also be posing shirtless, uh, showing my six-pack. Well, I never got that six-pack. I had a few six-packs <laughs> back in the day. But no, Ma Maddie, all jokes aside, you know, you've always been a hard worker. That's one thing, you know, when it comes to work ethic, I remember training back that I was new to the Bulls. You know, you got, your group was together for ages you guys were coming from 2002 and it was i never understood it in the beginning you know i felt a bit like an outsider until i really understood what it was all about it was about earning respect at the bulls we were different right you had to do the work on the field you had to pitch up at game time and the bulls were special and a lot of people ask me what is it about the bulls that you guys did all these great things. When I played with Corey Flynn here in Toulouse, he said to me, you know what, gee, I hate playing the Bulls. I'm like, why? Because we knew what was coming, but we just couldn't stop it. So, you know, the Bulls culture, I always talk about that. And people say like, gee, why are you always talking about the Bulls and not the box? I just said, because it's not that it was better. It was just special times. We had amazing players, Bucky's, Donnie Rousseau, Brian Abena, Farid Vainant, Piedri, so many great guys, Derek Keane. But seeing that you were there from the start, you were part with, of Heineke when he started building something great. You know, you were part of those losses. And then all of a sudden, things started to turn around. I joined in uh, 2005. But what would you say was the big trigger at the Bulls when things started changing? And what made that Bulls culture so strong? Yeah, gee, I think in 2002, Heineke got to the Bulls and he went around the world. And he actually got quite a few guys that weren't wanted at any of the other unions. and said, listen, come to the Bulls. He um, led a lot of the older Bulls guys who was won Curry Cups and so on. He let them go. And he said, listen, we're going to start a new culture. We want to be the best in the world. So that became our dream. In 2002, we said we're going to become the best team in the world. And like you know, it doesn't just happen overnight. So that same year, we lost four to 11 out of 11 Super Rugby games. Um, but we kept together and we started working. And we, um, we said to each other, the things we can control is to be fitter than anyone else, is to work harder than anyone else, to be more physical than anyone else. So the effort we put in was just so much more than anyone else. Um, you remember the blue bloods, we called it, when a session was done. And then we said, 20 more minutes. Let's go. Let's chase each other. And I mean, there was never, no, let's not do it. The senior players were in front saying, listen, we want to be the best. We, let's go. And then... 2007 before the, or 2006 end of the year before 2007 season when we said listen we're going to train on christmas day we're going to do a 5k run 
because no one else is going to do it. We'll be one training session at least in front of everyone else. I mean, we won the um, Super Rugby Trophy in the 83rd minute that year. So um, it was all about discipline. And I mean, we were a family. We had great times. We had fun. We had a lot of beers after games. We, we really enjoyed each other's company. But I think that dream and that passion was there. And the drive between the players, coaches firstly, but playing each other as well. Um, or something that's very special. I'm the same as you. I always talk about the Bulls. If people want to ask me about leadership, <laughs> I talk about it because it was an eight-year build to where we where we were, to where we wanted to be, and then we were there for three, four years at the top where we were almost untouchable. Well, that's how it felt. It felt we can beat anyone. We, I think, um, not being arrogant, but a lot of the time we thought we'll beat the Springbok side as well in those days. And um, so, um, yeah, it was a great group of guys and I mean Heineke always made it better as well and when Franz Ludeker came in he made it better he got better guys in to make the squad better he got better coaches in um, so it wasn't that we just had the same guys we changed through those eight years and we got better key people in and also the group um, someone asked me about leadership today so I was never this big motivator I was more the guy that focused on the technical stuff and I mean yourself Gary Buerta charging the guys up. I didn't have to say a lot. You guys charged them up. And it was great that I can just walk in and we knew Gathra is going to pick this guy. Gary is going to do. Vainan is going to give his uh, input here. And the group of guys that we had together, it was just perfect. Oh, Victor, just give me goosebumps here, taking me back to the days. Oh, man. You know, Victor, the, I always tell people, you know, the Bulls, I remember, and this was my thing. Yes, I wanted to perform. Yes, I wanted to play for the Springboks. But for me, I played for that moment after the game. When we would get back to the locker room, looking at yourself, looking at Bucky's, Gary, looking at each other, looking each other in the eyes and knowing that I gave it my best. I remember there were one or two occasions where I had a bad game. I would look at you and I could see the disappointment in your eyes. I could see the disappointment in Bucky's eyes. And that got to me. And I think that was the key. We really played for each other. Yes, we were professional rugby players, but that was unique. Somehow, Heineke managed to bring a bunch of players, a bunch of so-called no-names, if you can call it. If you think about it, Donnie Rousseau. Nobody knew about Donnie before he went to the Bulls. Same with Bucky's. All right? Okay, you're Victor. Everybody knew who you were. But <laughs> no, I'm joking. But a great bunch of people which worked well together. And when I spoke to, I actually spoke to Heineke today, and I said, we okay. had this confidence. And like you say, not sounding arrogant, I didn't say the Springboks. I said, I believe we could beat the All Blacks. You know, that's yeah. what I felt like, whether it would have happened or not. Um, but that's how it was just having this band of brothers going back to those memories out to Nikwa, you know, having all that luxury taken away from us, um, sleeping on these thin beds in hostel rooms. But how good was those bries after training? You know, how good was that? I won't go too much in detail what happened after that, but you know, that's where things that, like you mentioned, blue blood, you know, that was special. But Victor, what I want to say, you said you were just more focused on the technical things, but people don't understand how important it is that to create leaders. And I wasn't a natural leader in the beginning, I evolved into that role. And I assume it was the same for you. At what stage did you realize you are a leader in a team? 
And how did you identify what your responsibilities were? Yeah, you know, I mean, I was never a captain at school level. Uh, I captained the cricket side, but never the rugby side. Um, under 21, was never a captain. Um, but I think as you grow into your role, so it started off with me being the line-out captain, focusing on the line-out, running everything about the line-out, controlling that, um, telling people, listen, this is doing extra homework. And I think there it starts. So, this is taking control of this little area. And that's what you want in a team. I mean, nice leaders. I mean, Vainan took control of the backline moves, free of the whole backline. I mean, yourself at Scrum, you and Gary at Scrum Top. I mean, everyone at their own little area. And I think my beginning, and that's before you were there, my first year as a captain, I was useless because I want to do everything myself. And then all of a sudden, I learned, listen, I need to use these people. I've got these great people that got all the knowledge that I can trust 100% that can bring their bit to the game. And we have to trust each other and we need to empower each other and then we can be successful. And I mean, some of our best planning was after 10 beers, after 15 beers, <laughs> sitting at that little bar uh, in the change room. I mean, we didn't go out and go party in town. We sat there with each other. Families there, kids running around. But us, the eight or nine, we always call that that vital group of guys sitting at the bar, talking rugby. And we didn't talk other stuff. We talked rugby. How are we going to get better? How are we going to do this? How can we beat the Crusaders next week? Understand? And those are the things that makes a team. It's really spending time together. Lunchtime, sitting at um, trademarks, talking rugby. Saying, listen, where can we go? Where can we get better? Enjoying each other's company. I, I came back from Tulo, highest paid player in the world. I couldn't. I wanted to be with my mates. I wanted to play with them. I wanted to win more trophies. That's what rugby is about for me. And that was what it was about with the Bulls. Um, having those special guys. It was never work. I wanted to go to Lost because I couldn't wait to get to my face. And in the evenings, my wife had to pull me away because I wanted to have one or two more beers before I go home. You know, Victor, and, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. We love training. We loved it. You know, when Basil Carses, our conditioning coach, you would say, okay, guys, this would be like, bring it. You would like uh, Gary Bota, yeah. you would start shouting and screaming and going at the guys. It was an unbelievable culture. And it was just that mutual respect. And I always tell people in a team environment, we talk about team culture. It starts with respect. We respected each other and we were players from different backgrounds, you know, different cultures. We, some of us spoke English and um, some of the players couldn't even speak Afrikaans, but we respected each other. That's the most important. But the key thing, what I always looked forward, forward to was, was after training, whether that forwards coach, whether it was Johan or Puerto Himan say, forwards, it's time for us to assemble. And, you know, we've still yeah. been our trading gear, have a few cold ones. And for those who weren't uh, drinking beer, they would have a Coke. And, and, and that's what, what it's all about. I think in the modern day game, it's so different. You see players are completely disconnected. You know, we had a taste of it back in the day. You know, I remember when the Blackberries came out, everybody was on Messenger. But we didn't have social media and all the, it was a bit of Facebook. But we spent time together, you know. And I remember the losses. A lot of teams, when they lose, they start pointing fingers. You didn't do your job. You didn't do this. And one thing I remember the Bulls, you took accountability. A video session, you would lift up your hand and you would say, sorry, guys, that's on me. I remember back in the day, I would maybe slip up on defense against the Crusaders and I would speak to John. Say, John, that's on me. 
Okay, we just chat afterwards and John will take me through a few videos and say, gee, this is what you need to do. You need to adjust. But you touch base on something which I haven't seen in a lot of teams. You spoke about Vari, spoke about Vaynant and yourself. Obviously, we had different leaders that were not running things, but were taking control. We knew our plays. I see so often that players are out of place and the coaches are doing everything and the players are not doing much. They're just taking in information. But for you, you were a line-out specialist. You had this amazing ability. You knew your opponents in and out. And the biggest thing, so many people were focused on you that they forgot about all the other players and those were our best line-out options. But Victor, what was your process? Obviously, you started analyzing the lineups. So there's a lot of guys that follow me on social media, locks, and they're always asking me questions. What can I do to improve in the lineups? Is there any tips that you can give out to youngsters out there in terms of improving your technique in the lines? But I think most important, just analyzing it. Yeah, so first thing about anything is you must know the basics. I've, if you look at the lineup, footwork is the most important. Where you lift, the lifter. Everyone looking the same every time before lineout starts, not giving something away. I mean, if you start going into analyzing other teams, you pick up any basic error. If a guy look at a different space when there's a certain lineout, I picked it up because I spent hours and hours in front of that laptop on our own ball, making sure no one gives anything away. Everyone knows exactly the trigger. So those are the basic things. And footwork, of course, is so important. Um, I spent a bit of time with the American team and just showing them. And people don't understand. Everything is about half a second in the lineup because I'll rather go up against the guy right next to me, but I beat him by 10 seconds than go somewhere and someone pick me off and they just go up and they're in front of me. So I'll rather just I'll jump a guy or just beat him by 10 seconds. So that was how I thought about the lineup. But then you want to get into the head of the other guy. You must understand, looking at what he does, when he gets to his own 22, he goes for a format. 80% of the time is in front. If we contest like this, he's going to like that. So you have to show him we're going to do it and you must do something else. So it's always out thinking that guy making the calls on the other side. These days, I see a lot of the guys do the calls outside. They walk in. I don't know. I would love to play against him because I'll show them the one thing the whole time and I'll move and we'll get in the air and we'll wait for them. I think we'll steal a lot of balls, but this is how they do it these days. And there is probably bailouts and everything, but it's getting into the head of the other guy and showing something and then completely change the route. And then we had, I mean, I had fantastic jumpers with me. I had Bucky's, I had PSP's, I had Juan Smith with the spin box. Guys, Donnie Rousseau at Loose Forward sometimes, Piedri Vandenberg. I mean, those guys were locks themselves. They could jump at any time. So us understanding as well, I see a lot of teams these days, they do about half an hour line-out sessions. You know, we had an hour on a Monday, we had an hour on a Wednesday, and then we had line-out drives after that still. So we spend so much time at that aspect. And the more you train, the better you will get. So it's one thing doing the homework, but also doing a repetition on the field, understanding each other. If you want to do a man watch, you must understand when you're primary lifter, when you're secondary lifter, when can you go hard, when can't you go hard. So those are the things you must understand and that you can teach guys because a lot of the time they do things, but they don't know why. A coach said, listen, this was you must do, but you don't tell him what to look at, 
if this happens, why do you do certain things? So those are the little details that I think you can get that into a find out captain's head and he understands that. Even in the game, I go, you plan for a man watch system against you on the weekend, all of a sudden they're in a pot system. You must immediately know, okay, if they're in a pot system, these are the options that will be on. This is how I can dominate them. If they're in a pot, do they move or don't they move? So that's all the things that you have to think about. You know, Victor, I'm no specialist, brother, and I just think people are complicating it today. And you see line-out callers, they got this thing on their arm with the whole list on their moves. I've never seen you with anything written on your arm. You knew everything by heart, and you knew opposition. And I think players are not taking accountability by analyzing the opposition, and a lot of the line-out calls are driven by the coach. So that means the players are no longer thinking for themselves. And you just mentioned something. They call it, you called it in the lineup, and you had this ability to make the split-second decision. And we were all just with you, you know. And we we were tough on each other. Talking about us, our sessions. I remember if my lift wasn't good enough, you would give me the people's eye. Or I called the I like the rock. You would lift your eyebrows like ah, not good enough. Or you would say to Gary Butter, hey. That's not good enough. We kept each other. We, we kept each other at a high standard. So it wasn't even necessary for the coach to do that. And I think that's a key. Um, Victor, I want to move on. You know, you've had an unbelievable career and we don't have enough time to cover everything. So a lot of people are talk, asking me about games I remember, the balls that stood out. And I often talk about the, the Reds game, which we won. And everybody has a different version. <laughs> I've shared my version of that about how Heineke pitched it to us. So can you give us your version of what happened before that game? <laughs> well, so the thing is we had, we could watch the game in the morning. I think the Crusaders Blues played. And um, if the Blues upset the Crusaders, we could still finish in second position. And then the Crusaders won, of course. And we had to, so there was two scenarios. Either we beat the Reds by a bonus point, then we would be third on the lock. Or we just beat the Reds, then we will be fourth on the lock. But what I never thought about is beating the Reds and beating them by 72 points or 78 points. So when we arrived at the captain's practice, Heineke walked up to me. And um, I think him and Johan van Gaan, they were looking at me and I said, coach, what are we going to do? How are we going to tell these guys we need to win, but we can't score four tries? And he was like, what do you mean? I said, because I'd rather finish fourth and play the Sharks in South Africa than finishing third and go to the Crusaders and go play them over there. And he said, no, we're going for the win and the 78 points. And I'm like, what? Are you crazy? (laughs) And he said, and then we walked into the change room, and um, I remember his stories. You remember he told the story about the boy that go to the um, big mass spray session with his umbrella, and everyone else didn't have. And the the guy um, was spraying for rain. And this little boy said, "Listen, why don't everyone have the umbrellas here?" And the dad said, "Why? Well, because we're praying for rain. It's going to rain. So just you have to believe. You have to bring an umbrella." And then Heineke started and said, listen, we have to get two turnover scrums. We have to get two line-out drives. Ryan, you have to score three tries. Pierre, you have to score two tries. And he picked everyone out. But with the previous year, we had to beat the Stormers by 33 points in Cape Town, remember. 
and we beat them exactly by 33. And um, when we walked out of there, we just knew we were going to do it. We knew, listen, this is going to happen. And I mean, in that game, I think the Reds scored the first and we came back. We started scoring, jogging back. Remember, he said there's not enough time. We have to jog back. And whoever kicked, have to kick quickly. There's not enough time. And yeah, everything just happened. And Jakub van Avestazen came on at the end. And like you say, I still remember afterwards, I went to a farm. We went hunting throughout the night. So um, it was a good evening. Oh, it was amazing. I remember that game. It was just unbelievable. I couldn't believe it was happening. It's just we have this belief system. We believed in ourselves and we believed in each other. Victor, I want to move to your Springbok career. You know, you've part of the World Cup team 2007 that won. You've played in four World Cups, 2003, 2007, 2011, 2015. You know, a lot of people ask me, what was the key to winning that World Cup in 2007? You know, I believe it was preparation. It was about having a group of players that had been playing together for years and also Jake White, you know, identifying an amazing group and having great leaders. What can you share with us that you feel was one of the reasons that uh, South Africa won the World Cup in 2007? Well, yeah, a big role to play. Um, after 2003, uh, we had one of the worst World Cups any team can have. And just pitching up in Bloemfontein in 2003, in that first station in the uh, in the hotel, there was winning 2007 in France. And everything was planned back from the final date. Jake was so good on playing. He said, listen, he looked at the previous World Cups. You need to have your average age must be between 25 and 27. Your average caps per player must be this. And he worked towards that. And then... Um, I think Jake is very hard on standards. Uh, you know that with the training, where we had to be with fitness, where we had to be with um, our strength and everything. And he knew how to put a team together. And um, again, he went and he took that core players, where you were one of them uh, from that under-20 team, where you won the World Cup. And he had that, and he just added a few older guys like myself, uh, Monty, Os. And we built something together as well there that everyone trusted each other. We knew exactly what we wanted to do. Um, in the beginning, it was still, we had to found each other. Myself and Jake didn't see eye to eye always. And then, yeah, things just involved. And we actually pretty quickly got success. And then we almost went into a dip. And then, again, I think the success of the Bulls and even the Sharks in 2007, that gave us a lot of confidence going into the World Cup. Having beaten all the other New Zealand teams um, in Super Rugby, playing the final, um, knowing what we can do, that just helped a lot. And then again, you didn't stop, brought in Eddie Jones. Eddie had a big impact there as well. And um, yeah, I think the planning and just trusting himself, knowing what he believed he needed in a squad to win a World Cup. And he just stuck to that. And uh, we also uh, had a pretty special bond in the, with the Springbok. I mean, some of us, they played together for probably eight years. So um, a lot of guys there that were very close and a very big family environment. Yeah, Victor, we were very close. And I think we just had amazing characters, you know, amazing people, Skull Berger, you know, John Smith, you know, there were lots of leaders in that team, you know, amazing leaders. And everybody played a massive role in that World Cup. Victor, before we run out of time, you know, if there's one game, you know, of your career that takes you back that you'll remember that meant a lot to you. I know it's it's not easy. I know, except the World Cup final, of course. Is there one game that really stands out for you in your career? 
Um, gee, that was the one game. And so I'm going to mention two. So the one game was, we were in 2002 at the end of the year. So we got together with the Bulls. Then we stayed together and we went into a Curry Cup where no one gave us a chance. And it was a lot of youngsters. It was before almost the crop of you guys came through. It was all the Richard Bands, myself, Bucky, Donnie Rousseau. Um, and we played the Sharks in Durban in a semi-final. We came fourth on the lot. They were first. They had all these big names. They had Mark Andrews there, Steve Atherton, um, Andre Sneeman. They were all these Springboks in their team. And we were known. We were no-name brands. I think myself and US were probably the only to Springboks, uh, Derek Hogart was still 19 years old. And we went over to Durban, and that day, against all odds, we beat them. And that's where Buckies and myself felt, listen, here we now. Mark Andrews, you were, we're the new generation. We're taking over. And then we went on next week, uh, record-winning margin away from home at Alice Park against the Lions. And from there, we almost started building to this team that won everything in 2009 and 10. So that game was really special. And then, of course, that first win in Durban, where Brian scored in the 82nd minute. Um, just everything that went into that. Uh, we probably believe, we, we believed, but we didn't believe that we were ever going to win a Super Rugby trophy. And to get the opportunity to win it in the 82nd minute, just keep going and just keep going. Thought the ball was gone, but we got it back and we played. And we scored. And I mean, that doesn't just happen. That's hours and hours. Another 20 minutes of blue blood. Another death. Another line drive. Another scrum. Let's go one more. That's what made us win that game. And that game was just so special. Victor, you know, we got now as well uh, the Lions series coming up in uh, South Africa. And there's a lot going on. You know, what was your fondest memory of the Lions series in 2009? What can you share with us back then? Well, the build-up was pretty special. I mean, we were world champions. Um, in the build-up, there was a lot of talk about us being too old, uh, becoming 32, 30. And we just believed we actually in the prime um, with the team we had. And um, going into that first stage in Durban, uh, we went out and we smashed them physically. Uh, that first try was John just coming around the corner, just smashing it over. <laughs> And then they actually came back. And in the Loftus test match, again, one of the most special test matches um, I've been involved in. Uh, I remember the morning sitting at the hotel, uh, watching on TV when they showed the venue. And it was just red. It was a sea of red. There was no green there. Arriving at the stadium, again, didn't see any Springbok fans. Walking into Loftus, our uh, fortress Loftus, only hearing English songs uh, be, being sung inside. Um, and getting into that game behind, almost out of the game, there was a few changes in that second half. In the try of Jacques Fury, Mornay staying coming on, and then that last kick of Mornay. Um, when that penalty came, I could see France staying walking closer, John looking at France, and I was just sprinting there and said, You're giving this to Mornay. Mornay was also almost, he never gets too. Um, eager, but he was also walking fast, trying to get, get the ball because we knew, I and mean, he kicked that from there a million times in training sessions before, so we just knew, and he was in such form from Super Rugby, and 
giving that ball and that ball going through the poles and winning the series there at Loftus, our home where we played. It's just a fantastic game. Great things happen at Loftus. That's where all the memories happen. <laughs> Victor, you know, I, I feel we need to get on another podcast and there's so many things we haven't touched based on. Just quickly, what do you think is going to be happening in this Lions season? If you can give any predictions. I know you talk about this quite a lot, but if you can briefly give us some insights, what do you think is going to be happening? I think it's going to be a very tough series. I think it's going to be very close. Um I think we, we're fortunate that a lot of our players are playing overseas, so they're playing the same competitions as the British Isles Lions. But I just think, if you, again, if you look at our pack of forwards and the guys coming off the bench, we just have too much depth, uh, too much physicality. So for me, I think we're going to do, do it. We will probably win it 2-1 or something, but uh, it will be close. Um, one thing that's important is 100 pull-out. Um, hopefully he'll be 100% because he's very important. And um, then some of our second rowers, uh, Lua de Jaga being ready, Ergius Neyman hopefully being ready, bringing that impact off the bench. So those are big guys. And Dwayne Vermeulen, of course. I don't think Dwayne's going to be ready, but um, he's going to be a big loss for us. But mm. we've got players that can replace him, although they're not Dwayne Vermeulen. Um, but I think the physicality that our back of forwards will have will be too much for the Lions. Now, awesome. Looking forward to that. Victor, before we sign off, just quickly, just um, give us brief insights. What do you, are you currently doing? I see you on TV. You're super sport. Is there anything else that you're up to now? Life after rugby? You can't just be no, so I'm, <laughs> <laughs> no, so I'm a super sport, uh, commentating and uh, being a talent in stu and studio. And then um, I'm CEO of Wildswinkle. We do game auctions, wild game, and uh, we moved into online auctions, and live stocks. We do cattle auctions. Uh, we're doing farm auctions. So, yeah, we are online auction house now completely. And um, I've, I'm very lucky that I've got one of our uh, guys that played with us, Jakub Peturis, as my right-hand man and my partner. So the two of us are running the business together. That's no, awesome. Oh, yeah. And I'm winning a lot of money with free on the golf course. <laughs> the golf yeah. course. That's still going on. You guys, you don't stop, eh? Oh, you kids. Too, so just... <laughs> now, Victor, awesome stuff. You know, I definitely want to invite you again. I want to deep dive in your transition of the rugby, what you experience. And also, I would love to hear how you put your business into place. I think uh, so many rugby players can learn a lot from that. Not everybody has it easy after rugby, already dealing with the fact you're no longer that elite athlete. Um, that's a process on its own. But uh, Victor, it's been amazing chatting to you, brought back so much memories. Um, I think actually I might go open up a cold one right now, seeing that it's uh, 35 degrees here in Toulouse. So I'll be enjoying that. <laughs> you're having one now already. But Victor, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for joining us. And um, Yes, definitely. I'll be getting the link to your website as well. I'll be adding this to the description of the podcast for those of you listening. If you're involved in hunting, you're passionate about hunting, and would just like to hear what Victor's up to, you can check the link on his website, and you can also send him a DM on Instagram. I'll be adding all those links at the bottom at the description. Victor, my man, I wish you an unbelievable day. Look after yourself. Stay safe. Stay positive. All right? And stay strong. Get a touch, brother. Boom. Thanks, G-Man. Cheers. Lucky to speak, huh? 
Wow, what an awesome episode with the legendary Victor Matfield. That episode brought back so many memories. Guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate it, leave a review, take a screenshot of your review and send it to me on social media. I would like to see what you guys were thinking. And if there's anything you would like me to talk about on this podcast, please send me a DM or if you have awesome guests in mind. We'll do my best to accommodate everybody. Guys, I would like to thank you guys for all the support you have given me on my podcast journey. And I would like to give you something back as well. I've got a free seven-day mental resilience challenge, which I would love to share with you guys. If you want to access this seven-day mental resilience challenge to transform physically, mentally, and emotionally, just send me a DM mental resilience on Instagram. So guys, that's me. hope you guys have an unbelievable week. Remember, chase your goals, overcome those obstacles, and make sure that you dream big. I'm Coach G, and I'm done speaking.